We'll be reading this morning from Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6. And the Bible's in front of you, it's on page 1018. Matthew 11, 1 through 6. After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When God heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him. He said, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. May God bless the reading of his word. people who are now following instructions and shouting out their answers and unfortunately they didn't get it right but we'll work on that. Now if those of you who got it right will start shouting your answers next week. We'll sound smarter every week. (laughs) We've been enjoying that and uh, we've hopefully uh, been enjoying this series as well. It's been uh, hopefully challenging. It has been to me I know in preparation but Oh boy, there's just a lot to consider when you think about what it means for you to live as a Christian in these United States. And, and for what it means, you know, basically it's a series about how to be a Christian in America. And that seems like a funny series to be doing in a way, but then when we look around at our world and we look around at, you know, the election stuff going on and, and our culture and, and all these things, we, a lot of us are wrestling with, man, what, how should I respond to that as, as a Christian? You know, and, and for a lot of us, I think the problem started at the root where we've been trying to live with these two different competing things. Our, we're, we're Americans and we're Christians, and how do we reconcile those two? And I would submit to you that I believe too many people in our country have are been living as though America is this big umbrella, and then under this umbrella comes... You know, well, I'm a Christian, and I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a Republican or a Democrat, and I'm a, uh, you know, I've I followed this sports team, or, I, you know, all these different things fall under, you know, I'm a Southerner, or I'm a Yankee, or I'm a whatever. You know, you, we have all these little things, but they all kind of fall under this umbrella of, well, I'm an American. And we've been suggesting that as Christians, when we become a, a follower of Christ, our citizenship is transferred from the kingdoms of this world into a kingdom that never dies, that knows no boundaries, and, and whose king is permanently in charge. And, and he's got his own platform, as we're going to see today. He's got his own policies. He's got his own ideas about how we should live and, and what we should be for and against. And, 
And so we've been saying that, you know, instead of that, Christ should be our umbrella. And everything under that is submitted to that, you know, and falls under his authority, whether it's being an American or whatever. And so we've been looking at, you know, how do we make sense of that then? How do we live then as Americans in light of that? How can we leverage being an American and the privileges and rights that come with that for our kingdom where our primary citizenship lies? And so today is no exception as we look at politics a little bit. And, uh, and I just want to mention, you know, I just I thought it was hilarious that I, I planned this message a little bit early and we were on vacation this last week so I hadn't looked at it in a while and and this was slated for this week. And I had made myself a note to just mention some of the electoral drama. Because I figured it would have changed by the time, from the time I wrote the message to when I delivered it. I figured something new would have cropped up. But, and it did. <laughs> so <laughs> we had quite a week with uh, election news, haven't we? And, and it promises to keep coming. Uh, you know, every time that you in this election process have thought, can it get any crazier? Can it get any uglier? Can I get any more sick to my stomach? (laughs) Or whatever the case is. You know, it just exceeds your expectations once again. It just keeps coming. And uh, this week was certainly no exception as we had the remarks of Donald Trump plastered all over the news and uh, from, you know, several years past, which didn't, didn't, you know, lessen the blow of the nastiness of what was said. And... uh, but boy, you know, it's just, it's just been one thing after another. And if you're not sick yet, you probably will be by the time they're done. And by the time the media is done digging up all this stuff and spreading it all around for us to digest. What do we do in an election year like this one, or any election year, where not only are we given candidates who are always less than perfect, but this year it seems especially so. Um, what do we do when, you know... We have to also consider that whoever gets elected is also going to have an entire administration forming policies and, and affecting the laws that are passed and affecting how those laws are interpreted on the courts and so many things, so many factors to consider, so many policies. And, uh, you know, two parties, but then there's other parties around too that some people vote for, but they seldom get in office. How, this is such a different world than the world that Jesus and his first followers lived in, in some ways. In some ways, it's very similar. But in in some ways, you know, the the whole democracy voting thing was something that they didn't have to deal with. And so how do we, as Christians today, deal with a political environment like we have in America? How do we engage politically uh, in a way that would honor Christ? And that's kind of the subject today, but just before we dive in, really, just to set your expectations correctly, if you're expecting today for everyone to be lined out on, on what boxes to punch in the ballot booth, you know, or, or who to vote for, or, you know, if they really want to call themselves a Christian the next day, uh, that you've come to the wrong place, and that is not the purpose of this message, to tell anyone who to vote for, or what party, or any of that kind of stuff. Rather, this is a, a chance to look at this through a biblical lens and especially the lens of Jesus and to get maybe a fresh or refreshed perspective on politics in general and and just how we should approach it and view it as we make each of us our decisions on how to vote and how to engage in political discourse and so forth in our nation today. This account that we have today that we just read from Matthew 
It's a very interesting account from Scripture, and it's caused a lot of us probably at some point, if you've read it before, to scratch our heads a little bit. It involves two of probably the most prominent men in the Gospels, Jesus and John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in every is mentioned in every gospel account. He's mentioned prominently because he was a prominent figure for Jesus and for his disciples. He was the man who paved the way. He was the man whom Jesus called the greatest man born to woman. <laughs> That's a pretty big title. He was he was the man who pointed his own disciples to go and follow this new guy. Don't follow me. I'm not the Messiah. He's the one you're looking for. Go follow him. Jesus owed a lot of his ministry to John the Baptist. The Jesus' disciples owed the fact that they were there with Jesus to John the Baptist. He was a prominent figure. But at this season of life, he finds himself in a prison cell. And he's having some questions. He's having some, some problems of reconciling things that he thought he knew with what he's seeing happen now. As he looks and hears reports of what Jesus is doing while he, John the Baptist, supposedly somebody important in the kingdom of God, is sitting in a prison cell waiting for the other shoe to drop. And here's what we're told. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) I'm afraid I may be fighting off a sinus infection. I'm not sure who's winning yet, so... (laughs) If I cough it or something, that's what's going on. So when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? The thing that jumps out to me here is it does not say, When John heard in prison what Jesus was doing, it says when he heard what Christ was doing. And I think that was very intentionally put there. That's not just another substitute for Jesus. That's a title. It's a title that carried very specific ideas and hopes for the Jewish people that would have used that title even before Jesus came around as they hoped for the Messiah or in Greek the Christ. This is the chosen one of God. This literally means the anointed one of God. And in that culture, there were three people, three kinds of people in the Jewish culture that you anointed in that sense. There were prophets, and there were priests, and there were kings. And the Messiah, the Christ, was supposed to be the ultimate fulfillment of all those. See, in our culture... We separate things, right? We, we keep our politics separate from our religious stuff and sometimes even separate from moral stuff. We like everything in its own box. Nice and clean and separate. <laughs> but in that day, you know, that was, that was not the case for them. Their religious leaders were also political leaders. Their uh, political leaders were expected to be... Reli- I mean, you know, it was all mixed together. And this one especially whom they hoped for, this Messiah, would, would bring it all together in one package, would be, man, the Savior, the, the, the one who would make atonement, you know, the, the priest, the ultimate priest, 
who would ultimately reconcile their relationship to God. He'd be the the king who would win their freedom again and, and the prophet who would show them a better way. He would be all of it in one. And of course, everyone was hoping that Jesus was the Christ. And especially John the Baptist believed and hoped that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who would be the perfect prophet, priest, and king of his people. And no one had a problem with Jesus being a prophet. When they saw Jesus and what he was doing, he, they quickly assumed, you know, hey, yeah, looks like this is a great prophet of God. In fact, when Jesus later asked his disciples, who, what are people saying about me? They responded, well, most people, you know, accept that you're a prophet. You know, in the line of you know, Elijah and John the Baptist and all these other past great prophets, you know, you're, you're right there in the mix. Maybe even better. No one had a problem with Jesus being a prophet, but when they looked at the whole priest thing and the king thing, it didn't make sense what Jesus was doing. You know, as John sits in his prison cell and he looks out to him, it seems Jesus is just putting around Galilee in the backwoods of Judea, mixing it up with common people, and and yeah, doing the work of a prophet, but I mean, come on. He has very little to do with the priests of that nation or the priestly work of that nation. He had a lot of criticism for the priests. He had very little to do with the government of that nation. He'd occasionally comment on it. But he didn't appear to be doing anything priestly or kingly. Now we have the benefit of being able to look back and see the cross as the ultimate act of atonement. Making atonement that a priest could possibly do. And so we say, yeah, he's the ultimate priest. And we have the benefit of looking back and seeing the resurrection and saying, yeah, he's king forever. He's defeated death. He's defeated it all. He's the king. John the Baptist didn't have all that to go off. He just looks out there and he sees Jesus doing all his Jesus stuff and he's like are you the one? Are you the Christ? Are you the one we were expecting or should we expect someone else? Because you know we're only seeing like a third of the pie here. you know, And it's supposed to be more than that. You're supposed to be the anointed one, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And I think this is important to notice because Jesus continues to defy our expectations. And I say our expectations because we still cling to the same ideas that John the Baptist did then. When we we think about how Jesus ought to be interacting in our world. And think about it. Whenever there's a problem in our society, whenever there's a problem in our culture, we expect him to work through the government. Don't we? When, when marriages are breaking down, we pray that you know, Jesus would intervene, that they would pass laws that would protect marriage, biblical marriage. When abortions are happening, we, we pray that they would you know, pass laws that make it illegal. When, you know, you can just keep, when, when people stay in a cycle of poverty, we pray that the right kind of programs will get in place to help empower people to get out of that. When we see our children running from faith, we say, well, good grief, the the government needs to put the Bible back in schools. They need to put prayer back in schools. And we expect Jesus to work in a certain way. And he oftentimes doesn't. And similarly, John the Baptist expected Jesus to come working in a certain way. And he didn't. 
And could that be because political engagement is not the only nor even the best way to create the kind of change that our world so desperately needs. I just tend to believe that if political engagement was the best way to change the world, then Jesus would have come as a political figure. Don't you think so? But he didn't. And that was a stumbling block for many people, even the greatest people of his day, like John the Baptist. And it's still a frustration for us today. But that's not to say that Jesus didn't have political opinions or ideas about how things ought to be run or that he never commented on things that were the priorities of God for societies. In fact, we can find that God very much has a political platform. It was expressed through the law in the Old Testament, through the prophets of the Old Testament, and and it was reiterated in several ways by Jesus. And this is one of those cases when we hear Jesus' response to John the Baptist. Listen to what matters to Jesus. He said, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. And here we see Jesus echoing something that I mean, lately I've been reading through this chronological Bible. Uh, It's my first time to go through a chronological Bible where they, instead of it being in the order that it's usually in in our Bible, they just kind of mix it up according to when things happen. And so I'm still, I'm in the middle of the prophets now and kind of getting towards the end of the Old Testament time period. But it's been amazing for me to see from the beginning how many times God brings up those who are disadvantaged in society, whether they're foreigners or sick people or you know, people with leprosy or, or people who are uh, orphaned or widowed, you know, whoever had the least advantages in society, whoever was taken advantage of the most in society are the ones that God is constantly concerned about. And Jesus, several times, reiterated that same thing, that this matters to the heart of God and when you see God criticizing governments and peoples in the Old Testament it most often has to do with this look just one of many examples Isaiah chapter 10 woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. These aren't the only things that God says, but this is probably the most consistent thing that God says as part of his platform. Another couple things that show up quite often, I'll just put up this slide, and this is just an attempt to kind of summarize a lot of things that God has to say about governments and rulers He gets mad and angry when they don't maintain order by enacting just or fair or morally sound laws like we just read in Isaiah. Another big one is he gets frustrated when they aren't humble, you know, when they don't humbly acknowledge God. And they think, you know, this is by my power, this is by my strength that I've done all these amazing things and we have all these blessings. 
I don't need anybody. I don't need God. I don't need his guidance. And that's always a problem. So God's platform, we might say, is enacting fair, just, moral laws. Boy, every time a king led the people into moral corruption, (laughs) God had a problem with that. It's also about humility. Anytime a ruler or a nation begins to think too highly of themselves and stops humbly placing themselves before God in thanksgiving and in seeking his guidance, God has a problem with that. And, last but definitely not least, he has a heart for those with the greatest disadvantages. He does. And if you had to summarize God's platform, maybe you would summarize it that way. And I want to propose to us today that as we seek out how to engage politically as Christians in America, that we should be the people who promote Jesus' platform, Jesus' way. Who promote Jesus' platform, Jesus' way. And as I just mentioned, Jesus so often repeated and reiterated what God had already revealed through the law and through the prophets as his priorities when it comes to governing. And so in our nation, like many nations around the world, we have political parties. And in our particular nation, we have two that are prominent, that every year capture 99% of the offices to be held at the state and local and national level. We've got Democrats and we've got Republicans. And just as a way of quick review for those of us that don't stay brushed up on on what the views of those, the platforms of those two parties are. We're just going to paint with a very broad stroke here because we don't have time to dive into details. But you've got a Democratic Party that's generally called liberal with a leaning towards bigger and more involved government. They believe in more social programs for the poor, stricter rules and taxes for the rich, smaller military, less guns, protection of those with non-traditional values and morals. And again, painting with a very broad stroke, and if you define it, you might define it different. And the same goes for the Republican Party. They're generally called conservative. They lean towards smaller, less involved government, at least in theory. <laughs> Though sometimes it seems like all the politicians are for more government. That's job security for them, right? Uh, prefer lowered taxes, overall economic growth, uh, rather than trying to fix it with social pro- uh, programs. Bigger military, more guns, and protection of traditional values and morals. And that's, again, painting with broad stroke. But they, they have these platforms that are very specific to our culture and our time and the issues that we deal with. And in many ways, they look a lot different than God's platform. And they just deal with specifics and things that and, and sometimes we have a hard time matching up. Well, what, which one is best. How should we engage politically if we're going to promote Jesus' platform? And so what does it look like to promote Jesus' platform? And what I thought we would do just for a moment as we seek to try and apply this in our day and time and in our lives is take each one of those briefly of God's platform and and talk about, well, how do we engage politically then in light of that? And so the first one being to maintain order by enacting just, fair, and morally sound 
laws. Morally sound laws. I think that at some level we have to vote based on morals. We have to consider the morals of our nation and, and what is good for our nation because the, the, the things that we call morals the things that by and large are, are handed down to us in God's word as the best way to live that's what we believe about them that they're the best way to live that they're the best not only for individuals but for societies as a whole that God didn't just make these rules up on a whim but they're actually what would be best for us and so we don't vote this way just because God tells us to though that would be enough wouldn't it but we do it because we believe this is what's best for our nation and so we have to consider moral things you know if God's for sobriety then what do we need to do about the substance abuse issues of our day if God values human life even from the womb then what do we need to do about abortion if God you know values marriage and from a biblical standpoint then what do we need to do legal wise to promote God's platform and so we have to deal with those issues and, and there are definitely you know, some who would say that the Republican Party leans more towards those traditional values. But friend, I'm telling you, we live in a day and time where even they are distancing themselves from biblical morals. And the day is coming, if not already here, where you're going to find yourself with less and less in common with any political party in America. As our country rejects God's morals, we've got to be the voice that continues to speak up and say, you know, whatever political party you may align yourself with, or maybe you consider yourself an independent, be the voice that continues to call for living God's way, even when it's not popular to do so in our country. Not because you're a stick in the mud, but because you believe it's the best for our country, and it's the best way to honor God. And so we'll continue to call for it. The second one, humbly. I mean, it's just the word humble. <laughs> we can stop there and say, that ship has sailed. <laughs> you look at political candidates nowadays, humility is not in style. Humility apparently does not get you elected in America anymore. You don't hear anyone that sounds humble, except maybe in the primary process, you might see someone that sounds humble, and usually they get run over by a freight train, of pride before it's over and boy I mean as a nation we're a proud people sometimes too proud can we say that sometimes we think we're, we are where it's at and we have a little bit too big of a head and that's reflected in the candidates that come forward and you know they're the only one that can make it great and they're the only ones that are qualified and they, I mean just the pride and the self promotion it's disgusting to someone who loves and appreciates God's desire for a humble heart. And again, whatever party you find yourself in, whatever you find, be the voice that calls and desires humility from your leaders. And that doesn't write someone off because they're humble. But instead gives them a second look. And maybe if enough of us stand up and say we'd like humility in our leaders, maybe someday we'll actually be lucky enough to get it again. And the last one that perhaps is the most constant 
in-your-face thing when you look at all of Scripture and what God has to say about ruling and governing in societies. He's constantly concerned for the poor, for the disadvantaged in society, for those who are the most likely to be oppressed and taken advantage of by others who are powerful around them. We can say that in many ways, I think it's safe to say, that our country has made more progress in this area than perhaps any country had before us in caring for the rights of those minority groups and people who you know, face the most disadvantages in, in society. But we are still to be the champions for the poor and for those who are disadvantaged. And in their day, that was most always widows, orphans, people who were crippled, etc. In our day, it may look different. In our day, it may be a different group of people. You know, it may include people like shut-ins in our day and age. See, in, in their culture, when you, the older you got, the more esteemed you were in most cases. In our culture, at some point, a lot of times, families put people out to pasture, as it were. And so perhaps, you know, that's someone that's maybe not listed in your Bible, and yet is near to the heart of God. And you can think of others. People who, you know, are getting the short end of the stick in our society. And the church ought to be the people. The followers of Jesus ought to be the people, the voice calling for those people to be helped and more than calling for it as we'll see in a moment now different people look at this different ways as Christians for some Christians this is the very fact that they vote this is the very reason that they vote the way they vote and, and some people look at the Democratic Party and they say wow that's the champion of the poor and, uh, and that's the way I'm going to go. And then other people look at that and say, well, I think those programs are just keeping people poor. And I want something different. And other people look at the Republican Party and they say, wow, you know, I think a better economy and trying to get more jobs out there, well, that's the way to empower people to get out of, you know, the bad situations that they're in. Other people look at the same thing and they say, no, they're just helping rich people. I realize that there are people with different opinions in this room who are all trying to do what's best and I think what's important though is no matter what party you align yourself with no matter what philosophy you align yourself with you are the voice in your party that calls for doing better on this that we don't just keep on doing the same old programs that are burnt out and not helping anybody we ought to be the ones innovating and at the front lines of saying this is the issue people we need to take care of those who are not being taken care of and so the church ought to be that voice at the forefront and we ought to demand better of our politicians in this area as well. So we've talked a lot about Jesus' platform. And what it might look like to try and promote that. But the second part of our statement was not just to promote Jesus' platform, but to do it His way. And in His perspective, perhaps. So let's talk about what it means to promote Jesus' platform, Jesus' way. And I think, you know, if the last one maybe created more questions for you than answers, maybe this will be a little different on that. 
I want to say, too often when, when Christians, when I see Christians engage in political discourse, we are quicker to respond in kind than to respond in kindness. Right? We too often respond in kind rather than in kindness. There's this verse that very much sums up the way that Christians should engage in political discourse. It says, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech, and we might add anything that you email, or forward, or share, or post, <laughs> let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. We've got to hold ourselves accountable to speaking and engaging in a way that would honor Jesus and that would appear and feel gracious to outsiders, that would taste good in their mouth and not leave them with a bitter taste in their mouth. Because we do it with a mindset of winning souls being the most important thing, not winning an argument being the most important thing. And so just, you know, follow the advice of your mom. If you don't have anything nice to post, don't post nothing at all. <laughs> or say. That's just the 21st century version of the old wisdom that we all got from mom at some point. But it's not just that we color our speech with grace that we don't just respond in kind but with kindness that's, that's part of engaging politically Jesus way but the other part of it is recognizing what we mentioned earlier right off the bat when we looked at this account of Jesus interacting with John the Baptist and his followers when we realized that Jesus had not come as a political figure and that's reminding ourselves again that political engagement Though it can help and it can hurt, it is not the best way to affect change that our world so desperately needs. In fact, when you look at Jesus' own example, as we've talked about today, and when you look at the example of his first followers, you'll see that they impacted their communities and their world, turned it upside down without political help, in fact, in spite of political resistance. They didn't vote in the right candidates because they couldn't even vote. They weren't supported or given a platform. They were told to shut up or die. And yet, the kingdom was advanced. How? If politics is not the best way, then what is the best way? Well, we have Jesus' example for us. And we have the early church's example for us. Last week we looked at a letter from a Roman a long time ago who was writing about these Christians. He was trying to weed out of the empire that were threatening to overtake everything just decades after the launch of this thing. 
And yet somehow they're threatening to take over the Roman Empire. How does something like that happen? And we know from history that by 300 AD, there was even an emperor who <laughs> said, I'm a Christian. That's crazy to think about. That this thing that started as just this you know, offshoot of Judaism and the back corner of everyone's least favorite region of the Roman Empire suddenly somehow has taken over the whole thing and has become legalized. Well, today I want to share with you an excerpt from another letter written by another Roman later down the road in the 300s. This was the last emperor that tried to weed out Christianity that tried to restore Rome back to its pagan roots with the whole pantheon of gods and goddesses that they had worshipped for so long that was now almost done for at the hands of Christianity. His name was Emperor Julian. I'm going to read to you a quote from the book by John Dixon about Christian mission. And so the first part I read is about him, and I'll tell you when it starts the words of Emperor Julian himself. Dixon writes that, in fact, the influence of Christian good works was so great in the 4th century that Emperor Julian, AD 331 to 363, became fearful that Christianity might take over the world forever by the stealth of good works. He regarded Christianity as a sickness and called it atheism because Christians denied the existence of pagan gods and instead followed this Jesus guy who apparently Rome had crucified so they thought he was crazy. To one of his pagan officials, Emperor Julian wrote these telling words about Christian good deeds. And Here's the beginning of his letter. We must pay special attention to this point and by this means effect a cure for the sickening advance of Christianity. For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, his term for Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. And they have gained ascendancy in the worst of their deeds through the credit they win for such practices. For just as those who entice children with a cake and by throwing it to them two or three times induce them to follow them and then when they are far away from their friends they cast them on board a ship and sell them as slaves. By the same method I say these Galileans also begin with their so-called love feast which was like an open meal that everyone was invited to or hospitality or service of tables and for they have many ways of carrying it out and hence call it by many names and the result is that they have led very many into atheism <laughs> Christianity in other words Emperor Julian you weren't taking care of your citizens and there were a lot of them who were just left to fend for themselves in, in their poverty and in the oppression that they were living in and along came these people who did a better job of taking care of your citizens than you did and all of a sudden people started following Christ and so what did Emperor Julian do he started trying to convince his pagan priests and his officials to start implementing welfare type programs but it's hard to motivate people to be kind 
to people who can't show kindness back. Yeah, it takes some kind of self-sacrificing love to do that. And then he couldn't, he couldn't concoct that the way Jesus can. And so therefore, from the beginning up through all of history, the people who have followed Jesus have been at the forefront of taking care of the people who needed taken care of the most. They've started the hospitals. They've started prison ministries. They've started feeding people who needed food. Helping people who needed shelter. It's always been that way. It was Emperor Julian and the Roman pagan worship system's demise. And it's still the best way to advance the gospel. It's not through our voting. You can't legislate a change of heart. The best way. Could it be? The, the best way is through our personal witness and our personal advancing of the gospel. And it could it be? What could happen if the church stopped waiting for God to change our nation through the government and started expecting Him to change our nation through us? Because if the government and legislation was the best way to change our nation and to change the hearts of people, then Jesus would have come as president and not as some backwoods rabbi that traveled around in the sticks. So we are called to promote Jesus' platform, Jesus' way. And I hope that what you take from this message today is first of all peace in knowing that no matter the outcome and no matter who or how corrupt the politicians get or who's in office that that's not the best way to affect the change that's needed anyway. And if we want to get busy doing that we don't have to wait for any politician's permission. We can just get busy advancing the kingdom of God. The same way that Jesus did, the same way that his first followers did. And by doing so, they turn the world upside down. And we can do the same, because we have a power that government knows nothing of. And I hope it also spurs you on to engage politically in a, in a different way, or from a different perspective. You know, should we vote? Yes. Should we participate? Yes. And we should do so, though, with God's platform as the priority. We should be the ones calling the political parties to the table and saying, you can do better, no matter which party you find yourself in. If you find yourself agreeing wholeheartedly with everything that one party puts forward, then you probably need to take a step back. Because neither of them have a monopoly on God's platform and we can always be the ones the voice that calls them to a better way so yes engage but don't engage as though it all rides on the political outcome because there's so much more at stake than that and there's so much more we can do than that and so let's pray together 
Lord God, we thank you for this nation that has in so many ways taken further steps than any other nation to live morally, to care for the poor and protect the rights of the disadvantaged. We confess, though, that sometimes we've been guilty of placing our hope in the government's ability to affect the change that our world so desperately needs when only Jesus can do that. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd call us back again to our gospel mission, to our roots of love and benevolence and good works. Teach us to change the world by your true power, the way our ancestors in Christ did so long ago. Amen.